Old School Lame Casual Chats is brought to you by Old School Lame, producing various content from blogs, videos, and podcasts discussing about movies, TV shows, video games, and everything else in between since 2011. You can check out the podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, Overcast, Breaker, Pocket Cast, and YouTube. We're associated with Channel Frederator, Manic Expression, The Comic Book Cast, and The Aaron Meta Show. This is him stamping the books. You keep saying that you don't have rhythm. Listen what you're doing right there. With that stamp and a book, you got a real nice hook. Sounds to me like you got rhythm to spare. I got no idea what you're talking about. I got about as much rhythm as that chair. What happened to me was a tragedy, but I don't need to be a millionaire. Look, I got a sweet deal going on here. I got all the books that I can read. All these sweet old ladies and this carpet from the 80s. What more can a librarian need? Besides, I ain't got rhythm. I said I ain't got rhythm. No, I ain't got rhythm. I ain't got rhythm. You're kidding me, right? You're kidding me. Don't you see what you were doing right then? That's a wicked groove you were starting to move. Mister, you got rhythm times ten. But I think perhaps you're not listening. I find it tedious to repeat. It's no big crime, I just can't keep time. I'm telling you, I've lost the beat. And I don't need my face on t-shirts or hear that power chord guitar. They were screaming my name, I guess it's just a shame. I don't need to be a rock star. Besides, I ain't got rhythm. No, I ain't got rhythm. No, I ain't got rhythm. I ain't got rhythm. No, I ain't got rhythm. Sounds like rhythm to me. I ain't got rhythm. Welcome to a new episode of Casual Chats. I am Patricia and I'm here with a super special guest. Uh, you may know him for his uh, writing, his producing, his composing, or even for his latest book, which is the Encyclopedia of Hell 2. We have Martin Olson. So welcome, Martin. Hi, Patricia. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. And I am like really super excited to have you over because I have been seeing your work, whether it be with animation or whether it be with writing music or even some of your writing. I've been seeing that for like practically all my life almost. Wow. Well, that makes me feel delighted and old. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I apologize for that. But no, I I say that in the most uh, sincerest way because you're like one of the many reasons why I decided that uh, instead of minoring in entrepreneurship, I was going to minor in English, focusing specifically on professional writing. Wow, great. No, that's great to hear, I'll tell you, because especially now you said you're going to be taking creative writing, right? Yes, I am going to be taking creative writing this coming semester. Use it as an opportunity to write some major work because of, and use that as a double purpose because then you'll get some work done and you'll get, you know, school credit for it i did that and then the next semester took a a special uh, a special course where i just wrote a book 
know what I mean? I worked a deal out that I could write a book and get credit for it. So uh, check that out. It's always a good thing when you get double duty. You don't have to just sit in class, but you can actually get work done. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And not only that, but uh, if you, you know, maybe during the, the creative writing process, you could also put it into your portfolio, which is what I'm trying to work on, where oh, yeah. uh, everything that I'm doing, even if it's minor, I put it in a portfolio so that when I'm ready to graduate, I can show off what I've been doing over the course of my school year. Yeah, you'll have a, the greatest thing is having the, having a body of work behind you. It's important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I would like to know, I mean, what have been your influences for writing? Well, I'm a comedy writer. Mm-hmm. So um, when I was a kid, uh, my mother was watching, the, when I first wanted to be a comedy writer, <clears throat> my mother was watching the Merv Griffin show, which was an old talk show back in ancient times. And he had eccentric guests on. And he said, and now brother Theodore. And suddenly the lights went black on this talk show. And this a spotlight, this dark spotlight hit the stage and this, I don't know, 60 year old German guy in a black turtleneck, black pants, came out with a shock of white hair and a crazy looking guy. And he started ranting and raving in a German accent about how we're all gonna die and how life was meaningless and every, line that he said was like a precision joke like a Stephen Wright type joke mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> and it was the funniest shit I had ever heard and I was what t- 10 or 12 or something and at that moment I said so that's so you can do comedy you can do writing like this because I was I was always writing little s- stories on my typewriter but that opened my mind to how you could kind of screw around with people's minds and, and have fun by by expanding the definition of what comedy is you know yeah especially since comedy is very diverse i mean it, and also it can be a bit subjective you know some people might find things some funny than others but yeah i think that with the type of comedy even if it's like very niche if you can be able to understand the fundamentals of it you can make anything funny well what happened is re- exactly and it certainly is subjective, but the, the main thing that happened was as a result of that when I was very young was that I ended up writing weird comedy. <laughs> so I ended up ultimately, because I pursued this as a, a, an avocation first, and then because I was writing all the time, I ended up writing for all of the weird comedians, you know? And so I ended up write, working on their TV shows or, or HBO specials or movies. And so I got known for unusual type of comedy, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, I I was very lucky and plus I did music. And so that kind of turned into a mainstay because I was a songwriter since I was 12, you know what I mean? Just writing horrible songs, but learning since I was that young. And then when I ended up writing television shows or movies, I would always pitch songs and the first time I broke through and was able to do it, that just unleashed the, uh, you know, I was able to then pitch other ones because I said, look, I sold this song here. So I ended up writing like, you know, almost 400 songs for Disney and other companies for TV. Uh, so I was just really lucky that um, I ended up having the right skills for, for a career that pays off, you know. 
Absolutely. Now you were just saying earlier about like pitches. Now I, about a year ago, I had Daryl Vickers on the show and he was talking to me about like pitching various ideas for episodes of TV shows. And depending on what the show is, sometimes they allow creative freedom and other times they are really mandated to like follow a specific structure and how, you know, what kind of risks that they can take in, t- in terms of what they can write about and who can they write about about and what morals to teach or what um, style to put it in. So what would you say were some of your, you know, like fonding, achieving moments in the pitching room? And what would you say were some of the most frustrating? Well, it depends on what, what type of pitching you'd mean. Do you mean pitching a TV show from scratch or pitching episodes while you're on staff? Any pitching, to be quite honest, because I know that when you're like uh, pitching an idea for a show or for an episode or even for a song, if you want to add a song into like a, a movie or a TV show, that could also, uh, I know that it's a bit different, but I do know that the, um, I would say like the foundation of it is more or less the same. Pitching is an ever-changing thing, but I do have a, excuse me, a talk that I gave because I do teaching. I told you over in, uh, for the uh, Roca Berti writing seminar in Europe. Mm-hmm. So I'll send the link to that if you want to post that with it. It's a talk on pitching, contemporary pitching now, because it's constantly changing, especially over the pandemic and everything like that. Right. Now it's all obviously done through Zoom. <clears throat> and um, the terrain has changed quite a bit because diversity is the number one issue. It's the number one box to be ticked off. So let me try to answer your question what, with what's going on now which isn't all that useful really because it's gonna be changing again, but also just in general. In general, you should go in with a partner. Also team up with, if you're an older person, team up with a younger person for sure. And also be aware of gender and race and have a representation in your group of say three people. So with that said, uh, and that's probably the greatest thing that's been happening with television or movies now because of a recognition of that as a need to. You know what I mean? Because before, if you had a, if you were of a, of a minority gender or race, it was very difficult to sell stuff. Mm-hmm. You know? So this is an important change for sure. So it just has to swing back. So it isn't all about that. <laughs> right. Swing back. So we're back to being able to pitch stories that aren't necessarily more morally correct, or are extremely crazy, and aren't uh, for the mainstream necessarily. It, because crazy stuff is what really has to, is what it becomes super successful. It just has to take off and find an audience rather than matching an audience that already exists. Yeah. So, and, and, and I also think that um, uh, another I- ideology that I've been learning over the past few years is that sometimes the audience doesn't know what they want until they're given something and then they I, want it. Well, you just keyed into the, the number one thing about pitching I was about to say. <laughs> You're a psychic. Wow, I, I just like guessed. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's what here's why that's the most important thing. When you're pitching something to, let's say it's TV executives, right? It's the same with film. You have to switch places with the person you're pitching to. You have to realize that this is a, this is a, a personal dynamic that you're in. It's kind of a game whereby you have to switch places and say, now, what would I, what would be the most useful thing for me to hear if I was him or her? And the bottom line is that whoever you pitch to has to pitch it to their boss. So it has to be very 
succinct and visual and like have be be able to be conveyed to someone else based on what you pitched. So that's the first thing to keep in mind because the person you're pitching to also has a job and doesn't want to get fired. So they need to have something from you that has tangible. And so here's what I do. First of all, I always pitch something weird. So my percentage of sales is, is low. But when I do get a sale or an option, um, you know, it's fun because it's different. The second thing is I always have a leave behind. Even though my agent and the Writers Guild generally uh, ask you not to do that, I have always done that. It's only about a page and a half or two and a half pages, something like that. So then if you have a leave behind that's succinct and is casual and not boring, um, and put some visuals in there too, uh, then uh, they'll have an easier job pitching it to their bosses. So that's basically what I would suggest. This is the obvious things of switch places with the person you're pitching with and intuit what they need. Or you can even just ask them, you know? <clears throat> How about after this meeting, if you, if you like this, I'll do a two and a half page, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, email it over to you. The main thing is to kind of acknowledge that you realize the position they're in. Now, I, I think that with pitching, uh, I mean, you, you were just, you know, I, I was, you know, that the, the moment that you said that diversity is like the number one thing that a lot of people are looking for. The thing that came to my mind when having you was that um, that scene in Rocco's Modern Life Static Cling where it was revealed that Ralph Bighead was Rachel. I know that was the greatest. Yeah, I, 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 Joe, I, I interviewed Joe Murray a few years ago, and this was like before the special even came out. So I knew that it wasn't there at the time, but he was hinting that, you know, we're going to reveal something special in, um, you know, in Rocco's Modern Life Side of Kling. And I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. So I didn't know about that. And, you know, the fact that that was revealed was genuinely surprising. And a lot of people really gravitated to it, which is great. Well, it just was so fun because here was the problem. I mean, Joe called up, first of all, Joe's one of my favorite human beings. He, he, he created basically a huge chunk of what modern TV animation is by hiring writers that weren't animation writers. I mean, what is an animation writer? What is that? Why would anyone just write animation? It's just a weird concept. Mm -hmm. So he just hired um, comedy writers, you know, and artists who were writers. And as a result, <laughs> he hired Steve Hillenberg, who created SpongeBob. He hired Dan and Swampy, who created Phineas and Ferb. And, and Doug Lawrence, who's head writer for SpongeBob. <laughs> so because he didn't go for the normal, he didn't take scripts from agents. He just took, he, he looked for people that were offbeat and did. So I fit the bill really well. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so when we did Static Cling, Joe had called up me and Doug Lawrence, who's head writer of SpongeBob and one of the craziest, most brilliant. I mean, Joe and I love him because he's a thinker who thinks way, way out of the box. Mm -hmm. And he's also one of the best, funniest artists I've ever met, ever. <clears throat> so um, he's able, he was able, Doug Lawrence is able to pitch jokes visually by drawing them. So that's a big advantage, which I don't do. But when Joe and I, when Joe and called Doug and I, we were up in his office in Hollywood <clears throat> in Glendale. What do we do? How do we do this? And Joe said, I don't know if we, if I even want to do this. I just wanted to invite you guys in to write it with me. If we do decide to do it, he says, because I'm not sure that this is Nickelodeon asked for either a new series or a special or a film. He said, I don't know. 
we already did the series and we had a clean end to it that was crazy and was we loved <clears throat> where the characters end up in outer space <laughs> yeah and so um he said first of all what do you guys think about this i don't know i want to make sure just because you guys went because doug and i wrote most of we we were one of one of the most solid writers we wrote a lot of episodes for his show so joe said should we do this and and i i thought maybe a movie would be better you know but and, and doug also agreed with him that maybe restarting the tv show was not a good idea because the next problem was well then what do we do because if it's a special for example we it's called rocco's modern life so back when we did the show in the 90s in ancient history there weren't even cell phones and barely computers i mean they just was starting up that stuff the first thing i wanted to introduce again excuse me was ralph bighead because i had was so thrilled that I pitched Ralph as a character, right? <clears throat> Ed Big Head's son, Rocco's neighbor, and said, hey, what if what if it's you doing the voice and we do kind of a satire of your experiences with Nickelodeon and, you know, the regular animation world? <clears throat> because Nickelodeon was a very supportive, good group, but it was tough. You know, Joe had a tough time because his humor was extreme. Yeah. But Joe was like a super good guy as opposed to like you know Lorena Stimpy guy was kind of a nut and sometimes was not a good nice guy you know mm, well especially with all the stuff that's been revealed recently he wasn't a very good person that's that's even an understatement but let's just continue well as a result of that Joe was like a breath of fresh air because he he was not a cutthroat or a shark or I mean what's his name that guy we're talking about on John uh, Kay he would scream at people you know yeah, Doug, Doug Lawrence yeah. worked with him and this is aside from his stupidity with the dating and all this weird stuff that he was into. Mm. Uh, I never met him, so I don't know, but I know that he used to yell at Doug and Doug didn't appreciate, Doug Lawrence, and Doug did not appreciate it. But point is that I pitched the, hey, why don't we bring, uh, why don't we bring uh, your character back, Joe? Because it, it was so funny when he agreed to do a voice because he's not a voice actor. I said, just use your regular voice for Ralph and we'll do a satire of the, animation business and and he loved it so we ended up doing that so we thought of the modern life in this new film was personal it wasn't like about the new world catching up to what the modern life is now <clears throat> that would go on in the background but if personally it was something where ralph who was a very uh flat voiced um unemotional <laughs> person had had gender issues and so i i suggested that and then joe got a weird twinkle in his eye i said oh wow you think we could do that would that be and doug jumped right on it and so we and it became so then we were on fire about this idea because we came up with something that would represent rocco's modern life today right so that was the backstory of how that happened well, it, it was a it, it turned out really well at the end. So I, I appreciate you, Doug and Joe for that. Well, also Co Cosmo Sigerson, who's a, a total genius. He directed and and wrote it as well. Oh, wow. Well, shout out to Cosmo as well. Oh, my God. He's a total genius. He does the Cupheads now. Oh, wow. The new the new Netflix show. Awesome. Yeah. 
you know, it's actually funny that you were mentioning about that now that I'm like circling a whole bunch of things going on in my mind. But uh, another thing I'm sure that you probably have to think now is like a television writer, in addition to diversity being like number one, I'm sure continuity has to be like maybe in the top five in terms of like now that people are into like ongoing story arcs. Uh, one of the most embarrassing things I've ever done on this podcast was talking about when Static Cling was just announced. And I was talking to Joe about like, so um, I'm actually curious, Joe, um, you know, how are you going to be able to continue the story off, you know, with, um, uh, you know, with the, after the events of the last episode where they all went to space and then they arrived here because that was already in the future and then they came back and that was part of modern life. And he just sure. looked at me and I was like, um, I'm sorry. It's like, it's just a cartoon, he told me. And I'm like, okay, that's perfectly fair enough. Fair enough. You know, it's like, I guess continuity was not like in his mind when he was coming up with that story. And I'm like, okay, that's fair. You know, because I know that some people, you know, they want to have self-contained stories and stuff like that. And I'm like, sure, you know, let's have it where, you know, the events took place in modern times. And then it went over to like our time as opposed to like way in the future. And then it's like yeah. further in the future. So it's like, you know what, you know, you're the, you're the creator. I'm just a geek. Fine. I, I'm just like pointing out all these like little tiny things. It's like, you know what, I'm not going to you know, I'm not going to go any further. It's like, yes, it's a cartoon. <laughs> Continuity doesn't matter in that case. So, you know, what? you're, you're the boss. I'm, I'm not going to say anything <laughs> well, else. That was an excellent question. And he knew that he just, was, he's a super funny person. He is. And so, so he just loves being kind of coy and funny about stuff. You know what I mean? Into, I mean, he's a, he's just a wonderful guy. So we were, we had so much fun writing that, the, the story for the film because it was like a weird thing. And, and Joe's premise was, should we do this? Do we need to do this? And so that was just a really honest way to start it off. And it was typical Joe, you know, mm -hmm. starting right from the actual burnt earth of, <laughs> of we have nothing, should we do this? We already did the series. And then when, when the gender issue idea came up and then we're suddenly, wait a minute. Oh yeah, that would be, it's a personal way to show the change that's happened in our world so that was a, 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 it turned out to be a very good solution despite uh, the the underground of of criticism about it right and also another thing that I, you know also needs to be brought up is that um there were just like so many um great moments in that special where it delved into like you know hey uh, nostalgia is able to like keep us afloat because it's apparently that's how we're going to save oaktown so it's like yeah i mean i guess it's like the thoughts of like television or the movie industry it's like you know what can we be able to do to make a, a billion dollars let's just bring something back from 30 years ago that'll reel the people in well that is the essence of joe's satire and so yeah. what you just said is exactly at the core of that whole thing. He's making fun of the whole idea of doing a reboot. And I can't tell you, I can't emphasize enough about the combination of Joe and, and, and Doug and me. For example, Doug is such a strong writer. Mm -hmm. He came up with that whole sequence, which was the turning point of the, of the film, which was Rocco, I guess, on the roof, talking to the winds of change. The winds of change, yeah. Oh my God, it was the most genius. He pitched that to us and was like, oh my God, Doug, we're back. <laughs> <laughs> and also working with those two, you constantly, I think we only had like four or five meetings once a week. And then we would each go back and, you know, write a memo or write a, a summary of what the meeting happened or, or just catch up with the story and then send it to all three of us. 
And so I think it only took like five meetings of probably two hours each to, to get the thing done because we did have to make sure the final thing was correct because Joe has a final rewrite on everything, of course. Of course. Um, but it just had to be a delicate matter because of the gender issue, you know? Absolutely. It had to be done correctly, so. Yeah, but nowadays we're seeing a lot more representation, which is fantastic because it's absolutely deserved. And I think that, um, you know, it, it really um, like skyrocketed when it was up on Netflix because a lot of people who were at the age when Rocco's Modern Life first came out were able to watch it. And um, it, it, I think it was like trending at um, when it first came out on Netflix because everybody just like really gravitated to it. And it was like, you know, uh, to like a return to form and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sure that, um, you know, knowing Joe from the interview that he seems to be the type of guy that once he is done with something, he just wants to move on to the next project. I I've been yeah, seeing a lot right. of, you know, people who are like that in which like they don't stick to like one specific thing. It's like, you know, once I'm done here, you know, up to the next um, project. Uh, the, the last time that I spoke to him was when he was working on the La Luna um, oh, yeah. That's PBS so program. Yeah. Yeah, this so was cool. like when it was brand new, but now it's like been in like what three seasons, and I think it was like nominated for like an Emmy or something. Yes, and he's worked with Cosmo on that too, so they're a super super good team. Anyway, I'm so glad you got a chance to meet Joe. This was over over the phone. Um, it was on Skype, and it was like, oh. geez, like over three years ago. And I, I, I it's like uh, I would actually message him like almost seven years ago, and I would like do an on and off. And then he was said, then he messaged me saying, "You're persistent, aren't you?" <laughs> and then I was like, um, "Yeah, I, I'm. I, I, you know, if if you're like too busy, then you know I don't want to bother. I'm sorry." But he's like, you know, when I was messaging you, it was like during a time in which I was like being bombarded with like a whole bunch of interviews for things. But you know, now that I'm more free, then that's fine. And uh, he was talking to me in his office, and he was surrounded by all of these like figurines in the background, and he had an Oswald the Lucky Rabbit mug that he was drinking oh, from. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, he. It, uh, <laughs> he he took some of his time to talk to me. That was, that, that's always very appreciative. Well, I'm so glad you got that experience because he's one of the core guys in modern animation for sure. I mean, without him, we wouldn't have all that other stuff. We wouldn't Absolutely. have SpongeBob, we wouldn't have Phineas and Ferb. Well, speaking of Phineas and Ferb, that's another show that I really do enjoy, even though that I was like in college when it came out, but everybody, yeah. like all the younger people that I knew just absolutely love the show. And they yeah. talk about like all the songs that were featured there and Dr. Doofenshmirtz and all those characters. So yeah, and then when my cousin was like, in a, uh, like it was around 10 or 11, that's when he got into Adventure Time. So like, this was like a huge new wave of animated stuff that, um, was coming yeah, out around my 20s. And then when I started looking back on them, I was like, man, I wish this stuff came out when I was a kid. <laughs> well, the, the tenor of those shows that you mentioned were for young and old. Mm -hmm. So that was a little bit of a difference. With Nickelodeon, uh, one of the Nickelodeon heads was a very smart woman named Jerry Laybourne instituted something called Kid Power. And that was where, all right, I don't think kids, she's, she's saying, I don't think kids want to watch adults. They want to watch kids. And all of us writers are thinking, what are you talking about, Jerry? <laughs> it doesn't matter if they're kids or adults. It's just the stories. I mean, people watch Superman or Batman. I mean, people watch, kids love watching adults. It doesn't matter. But the kid power thing had a, had a resonance and a staying power a little bit to the detriment of the freedom of 
animated children's shows, I think, because kids don't necessarily need to watch kids. They can watch anything. They can watch an animal. They can watch an adult. They can watch an alien. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It all depends on the writing and the character. But the kid power thing stuck. So it was a little bit of a drag um, that the tenor of all the shows, you could only pitch shows with kid, all kid characters. So it goes through changes, all the, the requirements for shows. It's freed up a lot, of course, as a result of Adult Swim, you know, mm-hmm. that, you know, be, the criteria for what a show is changed totally with them. You know, it was more surrealism at times. With Phineas and Ferb, let me tell you the story of how that started. Sure. So Dan and Swabby had been pitching that show. I remember hearing of it, them t- pitching it to me and showing me stuff about it, like, 15 years before <laughs> because they were in the office next to me at Rocco's Modern Life and Steve Hillenberg was in the office on the other side next to me and so we all had shows to pitch and stuff right so um, Dan and Swampy liked the outlines that I wrote because I wrote my outlines were I kind of back engineered from a visual that I wanted that's how I write a lot <clears throat> and so I had one of the outlines that Swampy liked a lot was called Popcorn Pandemonium. And it was about a back engineered from an image of an entire movie theater that that Rocco wanted to go see a drive-in, but there were no more drive-ins around. And now so, there are. <laughs> I know. So they went to, to the regular movies and the popcorn machine went crazy and and, and kept they couldn't stop the popcorn machine, which filled the entire theater with popcorn with such power that it burst all of the walls out, except for the wall where the screen was on. And so in the end, finally, Rocco and, and, and the guys were at a drive-in because they were outdoors and looking up at this. So Swampy liked that. And I just sort of back engineered the story from that image as an ending, right? Mm-hmm. So Swampy always remembered that, and they, Swampy and Dan were, in, were, were the ones who took that story and made it into a, and boarded it and made wrote it rewrote it with me. So <clears throat> they started doing more of my shows, and I really liked their work because they were so funny together. Sixteen years later, Swampy said, called me from from England, from London. He said, "Hey, I'm working over here." Blah blah. blah. Disney just called us to say that they wanted us to repitch Phineas and Ferb. I said, what? what? You Didn't you pitch that 10 years ago? He said, yes. But Disney was in trouble. They didn't have any shows. Something screwed up with their development department. I don't know what the story was, but it was bad. Mm. So they went through all of the closets with all of the treatments, and they found Phineas and Ferb there. And it was always rejected because the executives we're very afraid that things were too complicated for kids because executives aren't writers. I mean, they're brilliant people, but they don't, they're not writers and they want to keep their jobs. So they want to not pitch things that are too crazy. And Phineas and Ferb for Disney, not only didn't have a bad guy, <laughs> not only had the same story every single episode, it was a satire of storytelling and also it, it uh, had characters that were completely un-Disney-like. Dan had designed the characters, in, uh, uh, which a triangular head and a rectangular head. What the hell? That's not a Disney show at all. So 
Disney said, we love this show because of the positivity and because of the as aspirational power of the kids building stuff. And we like the conflict with Candace, but uh, you have to redesign the characters. And both Dan and Swabi said, no, that's, that's part of the look that we want. <laughs> and so finally, Dan just said, look, this isn't gonna happen. So Dan was here, Swampy was in, excuse me, London. And so Dan just did a animatic of the pilot that he and Swampy had come up with himself for free. And he gave it to them. Here's how the show works. Because it's very difficult to pitch a show that has three storylines in it. That's really a smart show. And also has um, characters that don't look like anything like Disney. <laughs> so. So luckily, Dan, being a genius, took the swamp story Swampy and he did, and he's one of the best board artists in the world. He did all of the dance sequences that were the most famous things in, in Family Guy, and Dan did all that single-handedly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then Disney said, okay, um, uh, let's do a pilot. So they called me in because they liked my writing from when we used to be a team, you know, 15 years before. <laughs> and so, it turns out that Dan Swampy and I were all songwriters. I mean, all of us, all three of us were songwriters. So we said, well, one of the conditions is we'd like to do songs. And they said, oh yeah, why don't you do, pitch some? So they wrote the theme song, which was killer. And then they had more confidence in, in us as doing songs. So then we started writing all the songs. So it just was a chance, uh, you know, a show made in heaven because it would never through the regular channels have been optioned and produced. Uh, absolutely. Considering that, just like you were saying before, it was at a time in which Disney pretty much didn't have a lot to offer. And and yeah. I mean, as me being kind of like a geeky historian about like all the things that were happening around like 2007, yeah. a lot of the networks were pretty much around the same boat. So the fact that Phineas and Ferb came out for a lot of people, it was like, it was like proof that animation for like television wasn't officially dead. So um, th that just goes to show you that you just need to have the right people. And, and I, mean, I think it came out of the right place at the right time, considering that, if, you know, even though that uh, Dan and Swampy wanted to pitch it around the 90s, I think that there's a case in which when, even though it, you know, their project doesn't come out right away, it will come out just when it, it's needed the most. Well, hats off to Meredith, the executive at Disney, who, who's stuck by it, because otherwise the other executives, I, I don't think would have, because it was so different from any other Disney show, mainly because remember, there's no bad guy. Right. So the conflicts had to be personal and they had to be with, with the, their sister who loves them. So how do you do conflict like that? It just was not a concept that Disney executives were familiar with. At any way, she uh, made, she got the show on the air. She basically, so we owe it all to her, but Dan and Swampy definitely were ready to walk if Disney wanted the characters redesigned or whatever, because they said, look, just buy the show with us and hire your own people to redesign it, do whatever you want. But we're not going to change the designs and we're not going to change the, we're not going to make the stories easier. You know what I mean? Because they also said it's too complicated. And they said, that's the joke. That's what's funny about it. <laughs> so, so it turned out to be the most fun show ever because it was always the same story replayed over and over again, which is the writer's delight because it's a satire to, of, of writing. So uh, that on top of the fact that we had a song in every episode and the most fun thing was writing songs with those guys, it just was the greatest stuff ever. 
And yeah. after a while, famous songwriters called up Disney or were they doing business? Hey, by the way, who writes the songs for, for Phineas and Ferb? There's no mention of it in the credits. And so he said, the creators of the show and the head writer. And so a, a couple, I mean, it, it turned out to be a thing that happened over and over again. Famous songwriters came in, hey, I'd like to meet them. And then we'd invite them to write songs with us. And it just was the most blazingly beautiful creative thing because every one of the pro guys knows you write a song in one hour you know that's it so one of the things about songwriting was that you always knew about an amateur if they said well i take a week or two weeks and you know what i mean that's not happening when you're writing for money you write it in one hour and then you fix it later so all of the songwriters who were famous that came in we all had the same point of view about how long it takes to write a song and then how you fix it and how you arrange it. But we had so much fun with them because we knew that we're just going to be writing for an hour, an hour and a half, a half hour just of laughing and howling, laughing first, and then getting down to writing a song. So it just was the most creative, wonderful place to be in. And, and largely because of Dan and Swampy were just both wonderful people. I mean, good, good guys. Yeah, they, they seem like good guys from what I've seen on their interviews and behind the scenes stories about how they would do the episodes or even any of the television specials or movies such as Enter the Second Dimension or even just recently with Candace Against the Universe. Oh my God, yeah. They're, they're, I mean, I just was so happy that the three of us ended up working together and that it was a success because it was a risk. You know what I mean? There was no Disney shows like that at all. And also... We knew we were going to be having fun, but it, it's a chance operation of whether the audience is going to connect with it. Well, it's just like we mentioned earlier. It's that sometimes the audience doesn't know what they want until it's given to them, and then they'll demand it. Yeah, it's funny. Phineas and Ferb became the thing that in pitch meetings, executives said, we want another Phineas and Ferb to all the writers. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Um, oh, you mean you want characters that a complicated show <laughs> that keeps repeating <laughs> the exact same story. <laughs> In other words, that was absurd because there you can't duplicate Phineas and Ferb. Yeah. I mean, not even, not even Dan and Swampy de uh, try to replicate Phineas and Ferb, even though that they did Milo's Murphy Law and they're doing another show about uh, a girl and her uh, hamster who are going to be superheroes, but it's not the same show as Phineas and Ferb. Yeah, Hamster and Gretel. I mean, that's Dan's new show. Yeah, And Swampy had Pete the Cat, and Swampy was doing all kinds of other shows as well. I mean, they're both hyper, hyper creative. Mm -hmm. And Dan and I wrote two songs for Hansel and Gretel so far. We did it over over Zoom, you know? Wow. And uh, also, my daughter works, <clears throat> my daughter Olivia works with both of them. Um, so, the, so they're old family with us. I mean, Swampy and Dan used to, when, when Olivia was, or in my son Casey were babies, I would bring them into to Nickelodeon and we would have, <laughs> we would have uh, baby carriage races down the long hallway. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember Dan and Swampy being involved in that. It was pretty funny. That's awesome, actually. <laughs> Have like big races so while well, everybody's trying to draw. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, everybody came out of the offices because we were all hard workers. Everybody, I mean, the first time I met Dan, get this, I, I didn't know how to, I'm not a, a, a cartoon. I don't know how to write cartoons and stuff. I don't know how to write for kids. I just want to write for myself. So Joe applauded that. He says, no, just write what you do. That's why the show was a successful and why he got all the best people. And so 
I'm, I'm there late at night. I'm working till nine o'clock because I told you I didn't know what I was doing. And I'm trying to figure out how to do stories for this show. And, and everybody else went home. And then I, I, and I kept hearing somebody in one of the offices near me, like one of the side, I don't know what, what it was, some kind of an artist room that I didn't even know what it was. And finally, I, I heard the noise again of this clicking and shit. And so I went over and I opened the door and it was Dan Povenmeyer at nine o'clock at night. He and I were the only ones there still working. And he was just doing, experimenting with walk cycles for heifer. Mm -hmm. I said, holy shit, so you're like me. You just, he says, yeah, I wanna make sure I get this right because so much is conveyed about the character by the way they walk. I mean, that's what a genius he is. Wow. And so he and I instantly became friends because we were both hard workers, you know? I mean, Dan has a much more solid brain than I have. I, I get overwhelmed sometimes, but uh, we became friends instantly as a result of that. Yeah, I can kind of relate to being overwhelmed with a lot of things in my mind, especially if I don't have it like written down on a piece of paper or on my laptop. It's just that we have so much ideas that we want to do that is like from completely different projects, but we don't even know where to start because there's no foundation. It's just ideas flying into your head. And then it's like, where do we start with writing this? But then when you try to sit down and write it, it's like, not only is there not enough to write about, or maybe there's too much to write about in which it gets overwhelming, but then sometimes it even dissipates and goes away. Oh my God, you just described exactly what it was like. So <laughs> what, I mean, that's exactly what it was like when I was telling you I was there till nine at night, because remember, this is at the beginning of Rocco's Modern Life. So I didn't really know Dan. And also, we didn't have know the show. We don't have we don't know what the characters are like. We're just trying to figure them out now. It's I mean, there's no show, right. so we just have a vague idea about what these characters are like. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so <clears throat> you have to create them. You have to actually. I mean, Doug Lawrence suddenly did Philbert. Um, Ro uh, Rocco's voice came in. I mean, that that whole thing with 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 Joe and the voices was because he worked with people before. Tom Kenny came in and um, Carlos was nailed the Rocco voice. And, and those guys were the nicest guys ever and so creative. And they would <clears throat> improvise and suggest stuff. And Joe was always loose with going with improvisation and changing thing on the spot if, he, if it made him laugh. So we just were lucky. The whole thing was a, was a lot of luck. Now, being in the writer's chair, uh, going into like with pitching and all that kind of stuff, now that you had like the pitch in mind. So when writing something or writing a story or writing like an episode, was there some moments in which when you wanted to um, write something and, you know, have there ever been any moments in which that had to be cut off either due to maybe that the idea was too risky at the time or maybe the joke didn't land or um, I guess we can talk about collaboration. So collaboration with other writers, especially if they have like other ideas that contrasted yours. Well, that's what it's all about. TV is a collaborative medium for sure. It's different than film. So what with film, you just get rewritten. But with TV, you write together. I'm not really a, I mean, it sounds so stupid and ignorant because I'm a comedy writer, but I, I never liked sitcoms for some reason. Sure. Never, never like, you know, four jokes a page and the audience laugh. I just didn't, I like Brother Theodore. <laughs> I like Andy Kaufman stuff that where it wasn't jokes, you know? And yet, of course, I admired well-crafted jokes. It's the greatest shit ever. 
that's at the core of comedy. <clears throat> but so is the reversals that don't have any words in them that are visual comedy. So the animated form of comedy really suited me well. I was lucky to to just luck into it as, as a result of Joe and Mary, Mary Harrington, by the way, <clears throat> one of the executives at Disney. And I had the world's, and I still have the world's greatest agent, writing agent, which is Annette Van Duren. So all the stars lined up really um, and I was willing to do hard work. So all those factors were, there's a lot of luck involved for sure. <laughs> well, uh, that's good to know. So it's basically just, you know, 50% uh, constant ideas in your mind, 10% luck, and the other percentage is just collaboration and teamwork. Yeah, that's, that's right. And, and, and luckily, because Joe picked such unusual writers, who didn't think of conventional ideas that we all were in sync instantly. <laughs> yeah. Now, going into what you were saying before about not having like a full foundation. Now, you and Olivia worked together on the Adventure Time Encyclopedia books. Now, there uh, a lot of the stuff that you were writing, some of it, maybe like a lot of it, like wasn't officially revealed until like maybe much later on in the series. So did you and Penn collaborate with that or did you have an idea and then maybe eventually Penn wrote it down into the show? Yeah, it was funny because I just was saying about with uh, the old Rocco's Modern Life thing with all those odd writers being there <clears throat> and we were in sync. Mm -hmm. So likewise, with Pen Pendleton Ward created that entire show just out of his uh, imagination. I mean, the whole thing came out of his mind. <laughs> right. And it was the most crazy. I mean, there had been nothing of its scope ever done before in animation. There was nothing. Yeah. I mean, it just was weirdly playful, but so intense and, and meaningful. And also underneath the whole thing was a back history you had to figure out that this was earth in the future that was destroyed yeah that the whole earth was a, a root in ruins and th and these characters sprouted up from the life force after it was destroyed so i mean it just was a magnificent vision in his mind and adam muto his second in command was equally of that of the mind just to do a magnificent giant story i mean a massive story that that went over thousands of years yeah <laughs> and plus they had the i mean the greatest board artists and writers that i've ever seen it was like being on rocco again it was un incredible and, wow. and also with phineas and ferb all of the staffs that i were on were top-notch people that were so imaginative and but i think it comes from the top dan and swampy would take suggestions from anybody didn't matter if it was just you know a copyist or someone who was who didn't have a, a, a creative role in it who was in production for example if someone came up with an idea and they would give them credit i mean that's what i meant about them being super good people so the whole staff was very happy and believe me that's that 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 counts for a lot and with penn ward i mean he, the, their writing staff was incredible and i mean rebecca sugar come on you know absolutely i mean one of the greatest writers in the world <laughs> did you ever see her animated her her, her cartoon things with with uh, where you're reading about the two brothers and one of these comic strips that she did and you're sobbing by the end of it do you know oh my goodness 
she's like, I mean, she was like a mad, and then her songs. Yes, absolutely. Oh my goodness. I got, no, I, I, I just want to say this, her music, whenever that it was featured on either Adventure Time or Steven Universe, but all the stuff that she wrote from Adventure Time, like I'm just your problem. Um, everything stays. Oh my goodness. It's incredible. It's like Lennon McCartney is that level of writing. It was just the, 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 she's just a soulful person. Yeah, and then when you listen to the fry song for the first time, it's like, why is she singing the song about French fries? What's the big deal? And then when you like listen to it even further, it's like, oh, it's not about French fries. Oh, <laughs> that was the genius of the writing staff because to, that was a that was a bit like even though you know Phineas and Ferb was a totally different animal. Yeah, that that particular thing in 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 Adventure Time, the fries subplot with Marceline and her dad. It's a satire of all of the reasonable things that you'd see on sitcom where there's a breach. <laughs> Just because he ate her fries one night because he was hungry and she had told him not to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the fact that they would go there, I mean, that was Penn's, you know what I mean? It's just the fact that they would satirize tropes in such a, such a bold way. Yeah. I mean, it just had, that show had everything going for it. Plus it was a work of surrealism. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was like really weird. I mean, you, you it's kind of like, uh, uh, I did an Adventure Time podcast a few months ago and then we were talking about like, uh, you know, can you name a show at, at least around that same time where it goes over like some strange philosophies with like Princess Bubblegum, where she's kind of like being like this sweet yet kind of controlling dictator. But at the same time, you have Jake and Finn just having crazy adventures together. And this like, how can you combine like strong emotional stuff like with Marceline's backstory combined with Jake and his fart jokes? It's like, come on, that's ridiculous. But it worked. You know what, Patricia, you should definitely be a writer on staff of shows. I mean, you, everything that you're talking about is exactly right on. <laughs> so, so you Thank definitely you. would be comfortable in a creative, just practice writing stories because I just know you'd be really good on staff for a show. Well, thank you. So, that, that really means a lot, seriously. And it's just a matter of practicing writing stories because you already have the, uh, first of all, your energy is really up, you know, positive and, and, and fast <laughs> so that really helps when you're working on staff of a show because it, you get so slogged down it's it's difficult after a while to keep to maintain the energy <clears throat> but um i was going to tell you the story of how how adventure time started with me and the, my daughter olivia please please do so i'm out in burbank at at a bar because after working on animated shows you get i mean you want to have a beer all the writers from different shows um, would would meet together because we all were in the same place and we all were going through the same problems with, you know, whether it was executives or whether it was just creative, creative downtime and trying to figure stuff out. It just it was, it was hard because you you have the world's greatest job, literally, and you want to make sure that you do your best. And sometimes it's hard to stay creative and, and, and think of new things and not just repeat old fucking tropes and shit like that. You know what I'm saying? Of course. So I'm at a bar and I hadn't met Pendleton Ward. Um, I heard a lot about him and I heard he was the world's greatest guy. And he was very shy and he came over to me because there were maybe 10 of us and we're all just kind of laughing and drinking at different tables and stuff. And he came over, he says, hey, Martin, are you, I'm Penn, I I'm, I'm pitching this new show. And I wanted to ask you a question. I'm trying to figure out how to pitch it 
and I, and I have one character, one of the main characters. I heard your daughter's voice on Disney, and it was the exact voice I had pictured in my mind. The nuance, the way that she does everything. So I just wanted to, uh, he said it's stupid even talking about it because I haven't sold the show, and I don't know if it'll sell. But could you tell your daughter that I want her for the main, one of the main roles of this show, just so that she's familiar with, with it. So when she hears about it, she'll come in and, and, and do it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was an odd thing for him to do, but he was such a gentle, soft-spoken guy. He just was being sincere because he was worried about the show and he wanted to line up all of his ducks in advance in case it went through because things happen very quickly if you get an option on the show. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just the pilot. Sometimes they'll, they'll order six episodes. I mean, you never know. Right. Then the show happened and they called Olivia to come in. Olivia already knew about it because I told her what Penn had asked me to tell her. And Penn is a very shy guy, so he would barely even look at Olivia. <laughs> uh, and he's the sweetest person in the world. And also, obviously, one of the greatest creative geniuses of our age. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so... Uh, Olivia nailed it. She, wow. she, she, so Pence, they had to make believe they were auditioning other people, <laughs> <laughs> but he just wanted her to do it because that was the voice in his head. And so then I think after they taped the first two episodes or something, Penn Ward calls me up. I'm in my office at work at, at Disney, I think. And he says, um, or he texted me, Hey, can we talk? I had an idea. And so then we, I think it was a phone call and he said, Hey, listen, this is a little bit crazy, but um, I wanted to introduce uh, Marceline, your daughter's character's father on the show. And after talking with you, I know you're not an actor, but do you want to, would you do the voice? Because I think it would be sweet having, uh, having Marceline's actual real life father as her father. And also he said, by the way, um, I just read your book and I had written a book called Encyclopedia of Hell, which was a, a comedy book about uh, demons invading Earth and eating everybody and taking mm -hmm. over the planet. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in the, it became a popular book and, and, and I sold the film rights to, to Warners. And it, so, so, it, so people were reading the book and then it, it was generally i got good reviews that there was really funny because it's remember i like weird humor gotcha so he said i was reading your book and it occurred to me that i could put hell in adventure time as a as an other dimension what if you played the lord of hell and olivia was your daughter who was half demon which is what you would be and half vampire and so on so he said, I just have this thing. Would you be, be willing to do that? And I said, Penn, no, I'm not an actor. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're the greatest. And I'm so grateful that you hired Olivia, but I'm not an actor. And then he said, look, it, I'm talking to you right now and I'm hearing the voice of the character that I want. <laughs> so could you talk to your daughter and see if you see if she could talk you into it just discuss it and then don't make a decision now just let's talk tomorrow whatever so i talked to olivia and she said dad that would be fun you play my dad the because you wrote a book about hell <laughs> in the first verse as first first point of view of the devil and so why not do it so so i said okay but i was real nervous because i'm not an actor right right 
no desire at all whatever whatsoever to be in front of the camera and she said you're not going to be it's just your voice so it went well Penn said okay you gave me the thumbs up <laughs> and suddenly I'm an actor in the series playing my daughter's father <laughs> and and the main goal of the two characters is to kill each other so it fit it suited my sense of humor a lot and Olivia by the way is one of the funniest people ever so she has a twisted sense of humor <laughs> well I mean you taught her well <laughs> And my son, my son is like the brains of the family. And he, he and I are writing a book together now as well. Oh, that's great. Fantastic. That's how it happened. It was because Penn had heard her voice and, and that sort of engendered a lot of ideas for him of that's, there's the voice of the character. And now I know what the character is like. And, oh, wait a minute. Her father could play her actual father. <laughs> Well, I think it turned out great. I'm sure that Joe was probably feeling something similar. It's like me play Ralph Bighead. I'm not an actor. I'm I'm an artist. I'm a you know a creator of the show. But it worked out for him, and you know same thing worked out for you. I mean, it's kind of serendipitous. It's like you wrote a book about you know the perspective of hell, and it's yeah. like what better to be the lord of you know the show's equivalent of it than yourself. It's weird. You're absolutely right. And also, I didn't even think of that because Joe's told me no too. I mean, I had to fucking lobby for, I said, Joe, it'd be so much fun if you could do this. Plus I want to have Ralph, the big head's son, be, 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 be talk like you, except that I want to have him scream. So we'll have fun because Joe is the most soft-spoken, gentle soul in the world. And so to have him scream and yell a couple times <laughs> how many takes did it had to for him to yell out never never never, <laughs> never patricia we were howling we were we were howling it was the funniest stuff ever and i mean hats off to joe for doing that because he was playing against himself you know just as a joke right so it's really funny to hear your analysis about the same thing with me that i'm because joe said that he said i'm not an actor forget it yeah and the same thing that i had said so I didn't even think about that. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, but I, like I said, I, I think it both worked out in the end because, you know, Joe was able to essentially take um, a version of himself and put it into the show. And you and Olivia worked together in not only just the show, but also in writing the encyclopedias and also um, writing about the map of Adventure Time and Olivia did Marcy's super secret handbook. So... Oh I mean, God. you were able to just take that. And I've seen like videos about when you guys would do book signings and yep. you guys would like perform the songs together. So yeah, yeah, I think it just worked out great for you guys in the end. How lucky, Patricia. I mean, what the heck? It's just uh, now that I've told you the story of how that came about and how Phineas and Ferb came about and how Rocco's modern. I mean, you could see how much luck is involved. <laughs> sure but i'm sure that you've also had your you know up you've had your ups but i'm sure that you know with any project i mean you would have your downs because i mean that's the thing it's like you know when you're in the industry it's not always sunshine and rainbows i mean there, there could be a case in which like you know everything that you're working on it's great but sometimes you know maybe it doesn't work out like maybe you know the show doesn't pick up like you want it to or maybe that you're working on a project that is unfortunately a mandate that you're kind of forced into working you didn't enjoy the sh the project project itself, but you enjoy the company, you're going to have that kind of stuff from what I've been seeing and hearing from the people that I've interviewed over the years. Yeah, that's life for sure. But I'm telling you, I was lucky in ways I'm not even expressing to you because I, I was a comedy writer and it, it was an alien concept 
that someone would want to be an animation writer. What, you just want to write like cartoon? What the hell is it? What are you talking about? And if you're an artist, I could see that. But a, so I work, so I wrote comedy shows. I wrote HBO hour specials for all these big comedians. And, and I wrote the SAG awards for three years. You know what I mean? Yeah. Speeches for all the big actors and stuff. And uh, so I did a lot and I was pr writer producer for Penn and Teller's live action series. You know what I mean? So I did a wow, lot of, that's amazing. Lot of comedy stuff. And so I was always working. So I was one of the lucky ones and that's not even half of the luck because the other thing was that I could write songs because I already had you know what I mean so I had a whole other way to get jobs so my agent would get me all different types of jobs as a result of the different things that I did I would put a different hat on for different different gigs you know yeah now writing songs is like personally for me that has been really difficult because you need to like find a way for lyrics to flow naturally you have to think of the melody that has been a struggle for me personally well are you a songwriter too do you play instruments no i don't that's the problem well i don't think it's a problem because um all you have to do is study lyrics that for songs that you like practice writing lyrics and see how they do it and you don't have to have a melody in mind at all. Um, a lot of times with some of the shows I've written songs for with or without other people, <clears throat> we would suggest, uh, hey, it doesn't matter if you're a music, write, if you, if you created a show, let's write the theme song together, then you write the lyrics and then I'll put it to music and we can see, see where we're at. So that's um, something else I'd suggest to you and it's fun to do, you know? Okay, yeah. Uh, I know that when looking at lyrics, everybody has their own distinct style, whether it be alliteration, whether it be rhyming, whether it be, a, you know, storytelling. So I think that I will definitely look into all of those and figure out like, okay, if I want to write a song about, you know, something that's going on with me personally or a song about what's going on outside of uh, what I know about them. Yeah, I'll definitely take a look into that. Yeah, I would recommend that too to you and all of your listeners, because um, it's just a, another tool in your bag of tricks when you go out for jobs. Because when you have, if you get a staff job or if you're lucky enough to work with, collaborate with someone who, who works on a show, then uh, you have another thing you can pitch. Mm -hmm. Hey, why don't we do a song? Here's, I have some ideas for lyrics. I'll send them over to you tomorrow. And you have nothing, you just say that. <laughs> okay. Uh, another thing that also I was thinking in terms of like, writing in uh you know with like um song lyrics is that coming up with the melodies like you know making sure that it like really um flows nicely in with the music because i noticed that you know even with like any genre of music if you don't have the melody right the lyrics won't even matter it's like you can have like the most you know perfectly written lyrics but if the melody sounds kind of generic or sounds kind of underwhelming it's not going to really connect with a lot of the viewing audience well that really you don't have to worry about it because you're, you're going to have other people you're you're not you don't play the instruments so you wouldn't necessarily be writing the, the melodies <clears throat> i would leave that to pick people who write songs that you love right and then uh, collaborating with them, if you're, I mean, don't worry about that. Just write really good lyrics. Just uh, every single time on any job, this is the same with like, with, 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 uh, like I mentioned, Doug Lawrence, yeah. the head writer of SpongeBob. Mm -hmm. He and I shared the thing that every time we were doing something, we tried to make it the greatest thing ever written. <laughs> so I found out that a lot of other writers do that. And the ones that don't care or don't, 
care about their things being the greatest thing ever written because <laughs> it's never going to be the greatest thing, but you try to make it that. So that it's the aspiration and the, and the want to do the great work that's the most important thing. Now, looking back on all the stuff that you have written, what have been personally for you, the stuff that you've uh, written, whether it be books or, or lyrics or episodes, what have been to you the most proud that you can say, wow, you know, I did this and it really affected a lot of people in a positive way? Well, certainly my hell books are not seemingly positive. <clears throat> I wrote two books, one called Encyclopedia of Hell for Barrel House, my publisher, and also the new book, which is out August 31st, that is my favorite thing, and that's called The Conquest of Heaven, which is Encyclopedia of Hell 2. It's a sequel. And those are the things that I think are the best things I ever did, because instantly after Encyclopedia of Hell was published, you know, almost 10 years ago, my agent sold the film rights. You know what I mean? So that speaks to the power of the storytelling. So I was very happy. And also people would wrote in and, and suddenly we had like a, a book page on, on online and, and pretty soon there were 200,000 fans of the book. Wow. So the new book, The Conquest of Heaven is where after the, <laughs> in the first book, the demons have attacked and eaten earth and eaten all the humans. Satan realizes that he doesn't know how he was created. He doesn't have a memory that goes back. So he hears from human myths and lores that there's a creator that created everything. And Satan starts thinking about that because he's not exactly someone who is, has, is a self-critical person. <laughs> Evil doesn't exactly second guess themselves. He is determined now to retire and or drop out and go to find out where heaven is and go on a rogue mission to find heaven and find God if he exists and kill him. And then he will take over the whole universe. So that's the plot of this book that I have coming out now, The Conquest of Heaven. And it luckily it came out very funny. It's three interlocked stories. And it's a history of the future of the invasion of heaven by demons from a perspective of way, way in the future after the invasion was successful. <laughs> so <clears throat> that's my favorite project now, which is The Conquest of Heaven. And uh, uh, I'll, I'll send you a link and you can put it up on the thing. It's, it's on Amazon. All right, I will definitely do that. And if anybody is interested in reading it, then yeah, you can check out the link in the description below and you can check out the book when it comes out on August 31st. Great. Thanks so much. Absolutely. So uh, one final question. So yeah. you were saying early, you were talking earlier about like your favorite thing that you ever written. So all the stuff that you've been doing, not only just writing, but also with teaching as well. What do you want to take out of it when showing people who want to be future writers or future lyricists? What do you want them to learn so that they can be able to be successful in their own right? Well, I think that the biggest lesson for me was, um, not to cut not to do what other people are doing and just let your imagination roam free and in order to do that the biggest help for me was from one of my favorite writers this science fiction writer named robert sheckley who i was a huge fan of because he wrote such hilarious strange stories he was a comedy writer but he was a very well-known science fiction writer and he and i became friends and writing partners 
And he taught me, he said, I said, what is at the core of your writing? Because it's so different from everyone else's. He said, it's the credo, which is sympathy with all things. And I said, what do you mean? He said, it's that even the bad guys in your story, you know, might have a toothache. You know what I mean? Their, their uncle might, might have died and they have to go to the funeral. So everybody's, whether good or bad, even evil people would have moments where they are creative and positive. <clears throat> so in other words, you have sympathy with them. And that makes your work way funnier and way richer and more, way more real. Well, that is fantastic advice. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on by to the show, Martin, and giving all of your amazing insights to your writing and to your work and everything that you have said in this show. So thank you. Well, you're so welcome. And I'll send that right back to you, Patricia, because the way that you summed up a lot of the conflicts or the ways that some of these shows I worked on, what they were going through was exactly the way you analyzed it. So Hats off to you. It, it, really fun talking with you. Absolutely. So yeah, for, for those who are interested in checking out your work or for those who want to know more about you, uh, please uh, plug and promote your stuff. Great. Well, the main thing is just uh, the website has all the stuff on it, which is martin-olson, O-L-S-O-N.com. So you can get all the stuff there. Plus you can just look up on IMDB or, <clears throat> or on the wiki page for Martin Olson. So Thanks a million. This is fun. I'd let's do it again sometime. Oh, absolutely. Yes. But um, yeah, as for myself, uh, you can check me out on uh, facebook.com slash old school lane or youtube.com slash old school lane. I'm on Twitter at Patty underscore B underscore Miranda. I have uh, many podcast feeds. You can check me out on anchor, Spotify, Google podcasts, Apple podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, many places. New episodes of my podcast will go there first, and then it'll go up in a few days on YouTube. So thank you so much for listening, everyone. Let us know in the comments below about some of your favorite works that Martin has been a part of, whether it be with uh, his animation, whether it be with his music or his books, whichever. So please let us know. And uh, we hope to see you around soon and take care. The Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost came to me in a dream, I mean I don't want to boast. I asked them what the purpose of creation was, they smiled at me and said the explanation was, shaka-laka-boom, shaka-laka-boom. I said, what kind of an answer is that, my friend? I mean, what does it mean? And they said it again, shaka-laka-boom, shaka-laka-boom. Then they disappeared and it's only a guess But I think they didn't know when they just were busting my chops I mean it sounds like a joke answer, right? Believe it or not, the next night they reappeared But this time it looked like they were trying not to laugh I said, do you get out and make it fun of mortal men? And they got all serious and said it again Shaka-laka-boom Shaka-laka-boom We got in a fight and I kicked the father's ass But he did some damage going down so we respected it Shaka-laka-boom Shaka-laka-boom I woke up and realized I was late to meet my son For some ham and eggs so I jumped in the shower, yeah